Sir Palpatine, Timon Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Monday. This is a weekly Monday appearance, and it has occurred, in this case, on a Monday. The managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest, and on this edition of the program, as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, a tour of the National League East. I invite the managing editor to take me on a tour of the National League East. And what does one learn there? What do I, who is one, what do I learn there? Uh, I learn, we learn, together, that the Mets are infested with injuries and that they appear to be handling it with something less than a plum, perhaps negative a plum. We learned that the Nationals uh, have merely one injury, but it is to a very important person, their center fielder, Adam Eden, whom they are forced to replace with Eastern Red Columbine. That is a botanical reference which you will understand soon Cameron also informs us that there are three other teams in the National League East and if that attitude on Cameron's part sounds dismissive that's not the only instance of it in this episode of Finger of Studio even from the very beginning when I asked Dave Cameron how he's doing this is how he responds screw you I'm fine once again in response to a simple inquiry regarding his welfare this is how Dave Cameron answers screw you I'm fine Terrible, terrible, terrible. What's not terrible is an opportunity that you, as a listener of Fangraphs Audio and reader of Fangraphs.com, have right now, which is to become a member, to become a Fangraphs member for a reasonable sum. You could support Fangraphs, which supplies great and excellent content every day of the week for free or for something like free. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, but still a not entirely unreasonable sum, you can acquire an ad-free membership, a Fangraphs ad-free membership, which entitles you to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden or the baleful effects of banner ads, something which not only facilitates faster loading speeds, but also liberates one from the distortive influence of advertising. It's Fangraphs ad-free membership, available at Fangraphs.com and also by way of the link at the post for this edition of Fangraphs Audio. Okay, with that advertisement itself now concluded, let us move on to a conversation with Dave Cameron. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? That same managing editor, Dave Cameron. And what does it begin? Right now. Yeah. I think you're in Washington DC, is that true? I am, yes, that that is correct. Would you care to would you care to explain why you're there? Because uh, as, like up. by way of promotional material maybe? Well it's not really promotional unless you get this show up in the next five hours. That's not happening. Yeah. So uh I guess we're promoting the fact that pitch talks happened uh before you know before people listen to this, there was a Pitch yeah. Talks event in Washington, D.C., which is why I'm here. So next time there's a Pitch Talks event, go to it, and maybe we'll promote it with more uh, runway. No, I noticed that there was one in Kansas City, there was one in Cleveland, and um, you're not to be found at those, but here we are in Washington, D.C. You go all the way across the country. Yeah, well, there's uh, you know a certain dark overlord lives in the D.C. area. Oh, so. yeah, that guy. So I uh, went and uh, spent spent the weekend with the the guy who runs Fangraphs and begged him not to fire you. Beg him not to fire me? Yeah. Well, I don't. So you have incentive not to do it. Not that you care about my my uh, 
job security, but I protect you from having to edit all the posts. Well, that's that's true. Although if we got rid of you, I would just find someone else with the ability to edit all the posts. And, that, yeah. and you don't edit all the posts. You edit no, some, I of, don't. some of the posts. I edit some of the posts. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I would edit uh, Jeff Sullivan's post, for example, except uh, he doesn't want he doesn't want that. Yeah. Well, you would just make them worse. Ah, oh, that hurts. <laughs> Is it um, wrong? I want to say, okay, I asked you why you're in Washington, D.C. Now we know that. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I force you to do this, Dave Cameron. I'll explain to you a concept that exists in the world, and then I ask you essentially – I say something to the effect of what's what's like that in baseball. Do you know how I've done that before? Yeah. Okay. What's So we'll call it – today at least we'll call it. It has a new name today. It's called – What's like that in baseball? Okay. <laughs> okay. There is a there's a seed mix that I particularly like, a wildflower seed mix, uh, Dave. It's offered by American Meadows, I think. American Meadows, eh, maybe it's their it's their native northeast wildflower seed mix. It has a lot of perennials in it. Okay. Okay. And it's got a lot of nice flowers in it. A lot of flowers that I like. For example, uh, does it have swamp milkweed, Asclepias incarnata? Yeah, it does. Does it have New England aster, aster novi anglii? Yep. It's got jopy weed. Love jopy weed. Anyway, it has a flower for which I do not particularly care. And, uh, you know, you, you're getting what they send you. You cannot, you know, you can't, to have a custom mix is, is just a lot more money. You know what I'm saying? They've, they've, they've created these mixes and you're buying them, right? Um, they have a perennial known as Eastern Red Columbine. Uh, and it's actually very uh, Aquilegia canadensis, maybe, but we'll call it Eastern Red Columbine. And I do not particularly care for it aesthetically. Okay, Does, is it wearing a trench coat? No, it's not that. No, it's not terrible. In fact, uh, here I can even send you a picture as we talk. I know I recognize this is not make for terribly great radio, but perhaps um, something will come of it. Okay, I've sent you a note by way of our recording tool. I sent you a link. Do you see it? Yeah, I see it. Okay. That's Eastern Red Columbine. Now, I don't know how you feel about how it looks. What do you think? Uh, it looks like a flower. It looks like a flower, but not all flowers look like that. I mean, all flowers look different. This, this is, flower looks like it's upside down. Um, is your computer upside down? Yeah. That's how, oh. I, that's how I write. I just write upside down. I just sent you in the, well... You wouldn't know it from it. Anyway, I just sent you another, like, there's swamp milkweed, for example. I think swamp milkweed's beautiful, and it, and it draws... Um, Draws a lot of, uh, but it looks a lot different than Eastern Red Columbine. That also looks like a flower, but they both they look different from each other. Do you agree swamp, with that? Swamp milkweed looks like something that would show up in some kind of like uh, you know Jane Austen movie. <laughs> sure. Well, yeah. Okay. It has, but well, it has a uh, yeah, it's a meadow look to it. Anyway, Eastern Eastern Red Columbine looks like something that uh, I don't know. It, lo- it looks like one of those um, Willy Wonka uh, flowers that like an edible flower. Edible? I actually kind of okay, like. Yeah. I, I, I kind of like uh, – I prefer Eastern Red Columbine. To having, having no opinion about flowers. Well, no, that, this is what I'm flowers. saying. I'm, I'm just saying from for me personally, I look at it and it, and it, it does not appeal to me. However, it has, so it has this one drawback so as far as I'm concerned. But it has two advantages. One is among perennials, it's one of the first uh, to bloom in the season. A lot of perennials, including swamp milkweed – uh, perennial wildflowers tend to bloom like in July, August, September. They tend to be r- relatively late in the growing season. 
Um, this is not the case with Eastern Recombine. It can be up in May, for example. I think it can be. I don't know. I might be lying to you. But I think that's true. The other thing is it attracts hummingbirds. And uh, that's not the case with many flowers. For example, swamp milkweed. Swamp milkweed attracts butterflies, a lot of butterflies, but not, um, but not hummingbirds. And so I say, well, this has one disadvantage. I do not particularly care for it. It has a wart. So I do not particularly care for how it looks. On the other hand, think of these beneficial uh, qualities that it possesses. One, it, uh, it'll be up earlier than all the other flowers. Two, uh, it'll, it'll bring hummingbirds to the yard. And so I say, I'm not entirely satisfied with it, but because it's part of this mix, I will tolerate it. So Cameron, I ask you, what in baseball is like that? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm 100% prepared to answer because you just put me to sleep with five minutes of discussion about flowers. Okay. All right. Well, wh- when you do wake up, <laughs> maybe... Um... Um, so what in baseball is like a thing that you don't prefer but has some utility anyway? Yeah. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, you're yeah. getting there. We could have like short. It. We could have shortened the question dramatically if you had just asked that question. No, but I provided some uh, some an illustrative prelude, Dane. No, you're not Dane. <laughs> you're not Dane. <laughs> yeah, no, there's going to be yeah. Uh, yeah, this is a very different podcast. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a thing with some utility that you don't prefer. Um, well, we could tie this into today's post and uh, the fact that I'm in Washington D.C. The Washington Nationals are now stuck with Michael Taylor as their regular center fielder, mm-hmm. someone they probably do not prefer, considering that they gave up a lot to get Adam Eaton in order to not start Michael Taylor in center field. So six months ago, they declared, like, we do not want Michael Taylor starting center fielder on the 2017 Nationals, and now that's where they are. But they now have to quit face the question of, like, whether Michael Taylor has enough utility as a, you know, potentially uh, elite defensive center fielder who may or may not be able to hit. Uh, in order to dissuade them from acquiring some other center fielder who they think is better than uh, than Michael Taylor. So if they say, well, we would prefer to have Adam Eaton, but that's no longer an option. The swampy milkweed is apparently all out of stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we want this eastern columbine, or do we want to order some new seeds? And uh, So they have to decide whether to do that. Yeah, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Taylor is not completely without his uses. So, uh, you know, it's not that he is a completely... Uh, you know, wasted roster spot, but uh, mm-hmm. but for a team in their position, they have to decide if he has enough utility for them to, uh, you know, not order something that they would prefer more. Right. So the the drawback for Taylor, largely, right, is is his inability to. Well, he does. I mean, I was going to say he doesn't provide a, a lot on offense, and a lot of that is an inability to control the strike zone, really, in any substantive way. Well, he also doesn't have any power. Okay, so there's that too. <laughs> so if you you don't walk, you strike out a lot, and you don't hit for power, it's hard to be a good offensive player. Right. But if you were to look at his Z scores relative to like like his for his career, his strikeout rate relative to his isolated slugging, do you think his negative Z score for strikeout rate would be more negative than his negative for isolated power? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, his isolated power is like for his career is basically a little below average, right? Yeah. Like, is that's not the biggest weakness in his game. The biggest weakness yeah. in his game is the thirty-five percent strikeout rate. So, mm-hmm. uh, in some ways, you can kind of look at Michael Taylor and say this is Byron Buxton's floor, right? Like Byron Buxton, yeah. we've talked about on the podcast before, a very mm-hmm. interesting player. Right now, Michael Taylor and Byron Buxton, not entirely different players, right? Which, because Taylor is. And here is where we look at his, at his beneficial qualities, right? The uh, 
his ability to track hummingbirds, as it were. <laughs> uh, the thing that, that Taylor does well is he fields very well. Yeah, he's a, yeah. he's an excellent defensive center fielder. Right. Um, and it, well, here's actually um, now you know you and I uh, maybe a month or two ago we did a uh, we we recorded an episode of this program and we made a series of uh, bets, didn't we? Over under bets. We did. And that was called the over-under game with Dave Cameron. One of the bets has essentially been determined um, today. Oh, we made an Adam Eaton bet, didn't we? We did, yeah. It was the one you proposed the bet, and you said Adam Eaton's center field UZR with the Nats. Yeah. And you the, said that it would the be... The under's going to win this one. <laughs> yeah, you said that it would be eight. Well, eight was the over-under mark. Right. Plus eight. Yeah. Um, and it'll be like negative four or something, and now he's out for the year. Yeah, yeah, that's roughly what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. So the under wins. Did mm-hmm. who took the under? You? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're right. You're one and zero. Mm-hmm. Do you know what? Do you know what's another one? A brief aside, because I've been tracking this. Because, as you know, I relish those moments <laughs> when you were when you were incorrect. Um, the first one we made. I I said games entered by Andrew Miller in the seventh inning or earlier. Um, I, I, I set the over-under at 22. And I believe at the time you ridiculed me, as you want to do. Yeah, it sounds, sounds right. You frequently take the opportunity to ridicule me. Yeah. Well, do know that uh, a month into the season, Andrew Miller has made five appearances in the seventh inning or earlier. Are all of those in the seventh inning? No, 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 no. He's made ten, he's made ten appearances total, and five of them he has entered the game... In the seventh inning or earlier? Yeah, no, no. I, so, so, like, the seventh inning or earlier is too broad. Like, what, is he entering in the seventh inning or not? Because your, your point was that they were entering with, like, the fifth and sixth inning regularly. That's not how the, that's not how it was phrased, that's Dave. Fine. I said the seventh what inning. I, what I'm asking is, inning. when you say five attempt, five entrances in the seventh or earlier, they're all in the seventh inning, right? They're all in the seventh inning. Yeah, yeah. Right. So he's not being used the way that you described. You just happened to, uh, to phrase the question in a way that allows you to get a big loophole. Uh, well, you should recognize the loophole then. <laughs> you, re- you, 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 uh, you brushed my point aside. That's fine. Yeah. I, I think uh, the point remains Andrew Miller is not being used like he was used in the postseason. Yeah. All right. Well, you can have your point. Yeah. I would describe it as a Pyrrhic victory. That's fine. I will yeah. take all my victories, Pyrrhic or not. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about – I was going to ask you to – so you. I think you've answered my question. With regard to Eastern Red Columbine, I said, what's like that in baseball? You've answered Michael Taylor. Mm, that seems fine. Sure. What I mean, would you Michael, say is like that in baseball? What would your answer have been to your Well, I do think that, question? right, it's that type of player that has warts. I mean, at a certain level, it could be, well, not warts, but blisters. It could be uh, Rich Hill, right? <laughs> you sign Rich Hill, and you know he's you know he's really good at one thing. Right. Like getting batters out. <laughs> That's the best thing you can do as a pitcher. But he doesn't have a lot of – he doesn't give himself a lot of opportunities to do it because he's so often um, – uh, he's so often um, getting blisters on his fingers. And I guess it could be like – I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit like playing Marcus Semien at shortstop if you're the A's because um, you're like, oh, man, that's not, he's not a great defensive, defensive shortstop. He's probably improved over what he has been previously. But on the other hand, like you're like, well, he hits a lot of home runs for a shortstop. And like, you know – any sort of offensive output at the position is uh, 
you know, going to give you a, is going to be a great help when you have the positional uh, the positional adjustment. So, uh, you know, something like that. Yeah, players with warts. I mean, that's been a long. Who are some of the examples that Bill uh, that uh, Bill James would always cite? Was Ken Phelps? Was he like a? Was he yeah, like these I mean, that was players? kind of the old school player that wasn't yeah. valued. That James tried to argue for value is like they don't run, they don't you know strike out too much. Like they're old player skills guys, and, uh, right. and now I think those guys are more than properly valued. Right, right, yeah. So that so that's what I would say. But I think your I think your point is about Michael Taylor is perfect, and I also think that. Um, it uh, well, it uh, transitions nicely to the sort of things about which I was going to ask you today, uh, and let's so let's continue with the, with the Nats. I was gonna I was basically going to ask you to take me take the listener on a on a brief tour of the National League East, Dave. Okay. Um, because it uh, well, our our pages today and over the last weeks they have been uh, populated uh, to no small degree. Uh, with news from that particular division, and of course the Nationals uh, most most recently, because Adam Eaton hurt his whole leg. It seems like he hurt it pretty bad, um, and uh, the chances of him returning this year are low. Well, they're zero. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so one of the lowest numbers. Zero is low. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think if you offered someone a tour of the National League East, it would be kind of like someone. Like showing someone like a hey, would you like to see Detroit? Like you can start off at like the, the nice part of Detroit, which is mm-hmm. I don't know where the stadium is. Like there's some still remaining, and then or you can go to like the burned out buildings that are available for a dollar. Uh, because the Washington Nationals, even after losing Adam Eaton, they're the nice part of the division. They're seventeen and eight. Their offense is juggernaut-ish. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman mm-hmm. has apparently figured out how to hit from David from Daniel Murphy. Um, he realized hitting them all in the air is better than hitting it on the ground. Bryce Harper is healthy again. Uh, Trey Turner is still good. Uh, this is this is a scary good offense. The pitching is fine. Um, it's not amazing like it has been in, in prior years, but it's good. So mm-hmm. good pitching and a potentially great offense. Uh, this is a good team even without Adam Eaton. Yeah, you, rest- mentioned, you, met, you mentioned the Ryan Zimmerman point. Yeah. I've, I've, Coming into the into any season now, it used to be, and, and this still exists. There was the sort of uh, the best shapers trope, right? Right. Players would come in, they would utter the words, I, "I'm in the best shape of my life," which, of course, that's what they should say. That's right. what everyone should say, and they should feel that way. Um, I'm in the best shape of my life. That's good. Uh, but to, I think that we found, you know, frequently, there was, uh, you know, not all those players had career years, right? Yeah. <clears throat> But the sort of the 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 2017 version of that is guys who've uh, reworked their swings a little bit. Yeah, the launch angle crew. Right, and you had a situation coming into the year where I think you know there were reports. I don't know if it was Daniel Murphy who mentioned it first or if it was Zimmerman who mentioned it first. Something to the effect of that Ryan Zimmerman had been talking to Daniel Murphy and was going to essentially tap into his bat speed better. Uh, because I think he was always recording high bat speeds. The point is he wasn't getting the ball in the air enough. He said uh, after conversations with Daniel Murphy, it was going to be a focus for him. And it appears, it appears at least over the first month of the season, to be a thing that's actually uh, come to fruition. Right. Uh, I think what Zimmerman last year recorded the third or fourth highest exit velocity overall. So like if you sorted the exit velocity leaderboards last year, you'd be like, look at all these great players. What's Ryan Zimmerman and his 65 WRC plus doing up there? He was kind of the guy that you could point to as like why exit velocity doesn't mean, you know, uh, doesn't perfectly correlate to just 
results. And, uh, you know, some people pointed to Zimmerman as like an example of why active velocity was being overestimated or overused. Um, but, uh, you know, as I think Mike Petriello wrote a number of times over the offseason when kind of extolling the potential virtues of Ryan Zimmerman, uh, and, you know, I think we've talked about with Eric Hosmer here, is it shows some level of potential, right? Like if a change could be made to where the, you know, trajectory of the ball could be shifted at the same level of exit velocity, then the results would transform dramatically. And so far, that's what we've seen with Ryan Zimmerman in April. He's had 11 home runs. Uh, you know, he's been one of the best players in, in baseball after being one of the worst players in baseball. Um, it does seem like there is some ability for exit velocity to be predictive of substantial market improvements like with Murphy and now potentially with Ryan Zimmerman uh, if a player can make those changes. I think like with a guy like Hosmer, we see that it's like not always going to be so easy to do or you know maybe Hosmer's just not motivated to do it if he thinks he's a good player already. Not every player who has high exit velocity and low launch angle can just make the switch. It's, it's not simple as like making a decision. But it does at least suggest that like for these players who hit the ball really hard and are not getting good results – there might be a way for them to get out of that. Yeah, and it, to, to your point um, about the sort of changes that Zimmerman made, obviously with the sample sizes they are, we cannot uh, we cannot necessarily look at any of these things as true talent. But uh, his walk rate and his strike rate right now, through you know roughly 100 plate appearances in the season, are basically identical to what he produced last year. Right, and those are those are foundational stats in any player's profile, right? Uh, walk rate and strike rate. However, his his uh, batting average on balls and plays is 200 points higher. Right. And, of course, if you are nailing down ideal launch angles, especially in that sort of like – what's the degree window? Like for the line drive, it's, you know, like 10 to – 10, 10 to 15 degrees. 10 yeah. to 15, something like that. Uh, you, you you might say, well, he's probably recording more of those. And his and his ground ball rate has is more than 10 points lower than last year. Yeah. Uh, so this is – and, and that's something that that, t- that does tend to become reliable on a smaller sample size. So this is clearly, um, so it, this does appear to be clearly someone who ch- a uh, changed his approach, is getting the ball in the air more often, and b uh, is reaping the, the reaping the benefits of it. Right. I mean, I think we have too many examples now of guys who have made this change to say, you know. Oh, it's just small sample size, whatever. Like, obviously, the Zimmerman, he's not going to keep hitting this well. But it's no longer, um, you know, just anecdotal evidence uh, of, you know, oh, yeah, Janie Martinez, okay, there's a few of those, Josh Donaldson, like, you know, you're just falling back on the same old story. It's now, it's like basically every year we're getting an example of a guy who it's like, oh, I'm going to hit the ball up and, and does significantly better than he did before. Now, I, I think Travis Sotrick brought this up in a post recently. And, of course, he's covered the, the sort of launch angle – um, stories uh, with some with some uh, closeness. I don't, I don't know if that's the word. Uh, with some close. Anyway, uh, he said that we don't always necessarily see the players who have decided to change the launch angle and just failed miserably, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, is there any sense of of players who have perhaps changed their approach and it just has not worked at all? Well, Byron Buxton, maybe. I mean, like I okay. think he was one of the guys we talked about uh, last September. Tried figured out how to pull the ball more, hit for power. His September numbers were really good. I think he had like a ten home runs in September or something. Like it looked like he had finally figured out how to hit for power, and this year he's totally lost. Uh, obviously, just in April, so he still has time to turn it around. But he's a guy who looked like you could kind of draw a line of demarcation and be like, here's earlier Byron Buxton, here's pull power Byron Buxton. Well, that hasn't worked so far. Yeah, no, not, not not so much this season. Yeah, he did have 
he still managed to hit 10 home runs last year. What a what an interesting player. And he, he's produced, despite his troubles, he's produced a positive war already this season. And a lot of it is fielding. Okay. Uh, th- that's the Nationals. Y- you mentioned center field. It looks like, given the lead, all, you know, given the lead they already possess, possess in the division, um, they're up by five games over the nearest competitors. Those competitors are the Marlins and Phillies. Uh, given the what the projection said at the beginning of the year, this team is projected to win the division by like 15 games, the Nationals. So it does not necessarily seem as though the regular season is their, is their problem at this point. How, it, because of that, how, what incentive do they have to be uh, – uh, um, how aggressive ought they to be at the around the trade deadline in pursuing center field help? if it's only going to be for the playoffs. And it seems like they wouldn't necessarily want to give up a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the same question for the bullpen too, right? Like, they don't really have an established closer at this point. Um, so you can look at it and say they now have kind of two glaring holes on the roster. So this is, you know, a team that's very likely to make the post- postseason. I think we have their playoff odds at 95%, right? So, like, the odds of the Nationals not at least making the wild card game are pretty slim at this point. So any upgrade you make is going to be – effectively to, you know, reduce your catastrophe odds where, you know, a couple more guys get hurt and you play yourself out of the postseason. But, like, for the most part, the Nationals, they're not in, but they're, they should be pretty confident that they're going to be in the postseason. So how much future value do you give up for, you know, effectively one potential wildcard game if you struggle, or maybe, you know, 5 to 15 to, you know, upwards of 20, I guess, if you make a deep run. Postseason games, if you win the division and and try and get to the World Series, um, you know, there's certainly a difference between, say, Lorenzo Cain and Michael Taylor, right? Lorenzo Cain is a lot better. People are going to look at them and be like, well, it's the same basic skill set. It's good defense with okay bats, but, like, Lorenzo Cain's a way better defender. He's a way better base runner. He's a way better hitter. Like, he's, these are um, – he might be the same kind of player in the same way that, like, I have the same profession as, like, Tom Verducci. Like, like no, we're not the same, right? Like, there's uh, there's magnitudes of difference between us. There's magnitudes of difference between Lorenzo Cain and Michael Taylor. But then you're betting on 20 games, right? Like, potentially 20 games, maybe less, and and how much that might matter in a, in a small sample um, if the guy's even healthy enough to get there. I and mean, Lorenzo Cain has some injury problems. You could easily trade for Lorenzo Cain, and he could get hurt, and you're still starting Mark- Michael Taylor in September anyway, or in October anyway. So um, I think this is the question the Nats are going to have to confront is, you know, we've already depleted our farm system pretty heavily with the eat and trade. We don't have that many high-level trade chips left that we are willing to give up. Um, so do we make another big move to really try and push in while we can, while we have Bryce Harper and Strasburg and, you know, Max Scherzer in his prime? Uh, and then if we do that, if we're giving up Robles or Soto or Fetty or some of these guys, uh, are we willing to take a big step back in 2019-2020? Or do we just look at it and say, you know what, we're just going to kind of take the Braves model <clears throat> where, you know, they made the division 15 years or they won the division 15 years in a row and they finally won a World Series. Like, if you get enough shots of the postseason, eventually you will win one. Just That's kind of how it works. And so if the, if you're... Um, kind of running the cost-benefit analysis. I think the numbers rationally often come out on the side of just make the postseason as often as possible. And if you're in that position, maybe you don't give up a lot in order to strengthen the team, and you just say, we're going to make the playoffs this year, we're probably going to make the playoffs next year, and we're going to keep our best team together to try and make the playoffs in 2019, even if we lose Bryce Harper. Right. 
And I mean, in the American League last year, Cleveland, of course, Cleveland, uh, they just made the playoffs. But it was without Michael Brantley, who had previously been one of their best position players, right. and then also Carlos Carrasco and Danny Salazar, and they still made it. So it can happen. Yeah, and the postseason is just such a different animal that, like, you could look at it and be like, well, you can't really win with a bad bullpen. For all we know, Max Scherzer could go Madison Bumgarner and just carry them to a World Series by himself. I mean, you know, like, uh, the the 15 to 20 games in October are so variable that it's it's not so easy to justify, especially giving up a guy like Robles. Like, if the cost to get, like, you know, a high-end center fielder and some bullpen help, like, if you're, say, like, Lorenzo Cain and Kelvin Herrera is probably the one that you'd look at and be like, here's a package that makes sense that helps the Nationals in two spots where they need the most help. If, if the Royals really say, we want Victor Robles for those guys, I think you're justified to say no and gamble with worse players in October. Okay. Uh, let's move elsewhere. Uh, let's move on in the... In the to the NLA. dumpster fire parts of the division? Well... Emmaspan uh, provided a um, a helpful guide uh, by way of Twitter.com. She said that she translated, uh, translated some common Mets medical phrases to help fans make sense of the team's injury situation. Um, I don't know if you saw this, Cameron. I did, yeah. You did, yeah. So, so her Mets to English translations. When the Mets say it just tightened up, uh, that means that the player has a debilitating degenerative illness. Yeah. And when they say he's day-to-day... Uh, they, that means the, the doctors think there's a chance they can save his leg. And if the player is back by the All-Star break, that means authorities ask anyone who's had recent contact with this player to notify the nearest CDC quarantine station. Uh, this is obviously relevant to the team's current state. Could you give a, just a basic a brief roll call of, of who isn't on the Mets right now and is instead on their, their disabled list? Well, last week they lost Joanna Cespedes to a hamstring injury after they refused to put him on the disabled list for a hamstring injury and brought him back after a few days thinking he'd be fine. When his first game back, his hamstring started hurting and he went into the DL and he might be out for like a month or maybe longer. Uh, so that wasn't a good look for the Mets. Uh, and I think during that time when they wouldn't disable Cespedes, they actually played a few games with like no bench whatsoever because this Drupal Cabrera was also hurting then. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Wilmer Flores had, was hurting but wasn't yet on the DL. So they basically just played some games with like no reserves, uh, or like one guy covering all the backup spots. Um, Which in the, in the National League in particular yes, is, uh, is really quite folly. Right. Um, so they've lost, uh, they lost Espinus last week. Uh, they had previously lost, what, Steven Matz, uh, from their starting rotation and Seth Lugo, who was like a potential fill-in if any starters got hurt. So they'd already lost two starting pitchers. Um, they had lost, uh, Lucas Duda, who's been starting first baseman. So they moved Jay Bruce to first base for a little while, and that didn't go very well. Uh, and then when Cespedes got hurt, they were like, oh good, we can put Jay Bruce back in the outfield. Because we think that this is Jay Bruce's uh, least bad defensive position. Um, they, I think Wilmer Flores is now on the DL. Um, so they, David Wright, he's missed the entire season so far. Uh, with back problems, is lingering for years. Um, Brandon Nimmo, who's an outfielder, which they don't necessarily need another one, but you know potentially would have been helpful. Uh, when Cespedes got hurt, if they wanted to just call someone up in order to give them some depth, he's on the DL. And now, most recently, Noah Syndergaard, Scratched from the start last Thursday with biceps tenderness, refused an MRI on Friday, said he felt great through a bullpen, wouldn't take an MRI, pitched on Sunday at a game I was at, and uh, got torched, gave up five runs in the first inning. He was throwing 100 miles an hour, but it was straight and it was hittable, and uh, he walked off the mound at the start of the second inning, and today they did an MRI and found that he has a torn latissimus dorsi, and he's out for a couple months. 
Yeah, so that sounds painful. I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to tear one of those. Um, is this first of all? Is this uh, this cavalcade of injuries? Is this somehow representative of the of the Mets of the past couple of years? And if so, why why do we uh, why would you theorize that the Mets are somehow more prone to injury than other clubs than players in other clubs? So I think it's not so much that they're more prone to injury; it's the way that some of these injuries have been handled. So I think the, specifically with the Syndergaard and Cespedes cases, it's not so much that these guys got hurt. Like people get hurt, right? And pitchers especially get hurt. Pitchers who throw a hundred get hurt all the time. This is it's not a surprise that Noah Syndergaard is injured. It's the handling of the injuries. The uh, you know, Syndergaard saying, I refuse to take an MRI. Uh, I think Sandy, Sandy Alderson made a comment and said, like, I can't strap him down and throw him in a tube, which is true to some extent. But at the same time, part of the job of an organization is to develop trust with their players that what you're doing is in their best interest. And it seems uh, that by Syndergaard refusing to take an MRI, and I think uh, Stephen Matz is uh, potentially um, had some friction with the organization because he's gone outside their medical staff for outside opinions and hasn't uh, hasn't agreed with their um, uh, kind of takes on on how healthy he is. And pre- previously, there have been like public reports that like maybe he was faking an injury, and he's like, I'm, "Dude, I'm hurt." Um, uh-huh. The Mets have not developed a trust with their players to where if they say you need an MRI, the player's response is, "Okay, I think you're looking out for me." The player is like, "Screw you, I'm fine, I'm pitching." And <laughs> does not the, sound healthy. This, this is not how this should work. And uh, then to let Syndergaard, like, you know, it's fine. You don't, you can't strap Syndergaard in a tube and make him take the MRI. You also don't have to pitch him, right? Like, you can be like, "Fine, until you take an MRI, you're not taking the mound anymore." If you if you want to pitch again this year, take the MRI. Syndergaard would fold, right? Yeah. Like, this isn't this isn't a good contentious relationship to have. But you also don't have to stick him on the mound. Uh, and I, I know Nick Stellini wrote about this last week, and there's maybe some suggestion, too, that the team is trying to avoid uh, giving service time to guys who have not registered any yet. Is that, is that part of it? No. I, I no. mean, you know, like we can't say for sure, but no. There are no guys who, whose, whose promotion would be imminent. Yeah, I mean, they don't have a you know a Chris Bryant sitting down that they're, they're trying to hold for the Super 2. Like, I know it's, uh, it's kind of fun to be like, teams are evil. They're holding down all player salaries. But that's not the case in every scenario. This is not one of those scenarios. Where's Gavin Cicchini? That guy should be up. Is, huh? is a pitcher? No, he don't. <laughs> no, he's a shortstop. Never plays Noah Syndergaard. Well, yeah, but that would probably would not be a great fit, would it? Yeah. Although you got to figure he or uh, Ahmed Rosario, who's gotten off to a really good start at AAA. Uh, they probably both have pretty decent arm strength, right? It's true. And I will say, Jose Reyes was the starting first off for the Mets yesterday, so it's not like they're loaded at that position either. Yeah, that's right. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, where's that Struble Cabrera? Is he injured? Yeah. Yeah, all right. I could have figured that out. All right. So that's the Mets. The Mets are uh, having some troubles right now in their, their, uh, their preseason. Uh, since, since the beginning, since the preseason, uh, their chances have not improved, I guess. Yeah, their playoff odds are down like 30, 40 points. Right, okay. And that's uh, without move. accounting for the fact that Syndergaard, you know, he might not come back this year. Like, we're talking about, like, he could be out through a couple months. Like, if he's out until mid-July and the Mets are out of the race in mid-July, I don't know mm-hmm. why you bring him back. Right. So that that th- those two teams were supposed to be the, what, the wheat, the cream of the uh, yeah. Annalise crop? The, they were the only crop. They were the only crop. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, let's see. The Marlins are, though, in second place currently. Uh, they're tied with the Phillies, yeah. Right, they're tied with the Phillies, who are not the cream of the crop. But the Marlins possess now the third best chance uh, of making the playoffs of any team in the division. 
What's going on over there? Is are, uh, Giancarlo Stanton and Christian Yellick still playing very well? Uh, Stanton's doing normal Giancarlo Stanton things. Uh, he's hitting mm-hmm. home runs and striking out, and uh, you know he's not been amazing, but he's been good. Um, Yelich has been disappointing so far, not hitting for a lot of power. He has not yet made the Joey Votto leap that uh, Jeff Sullivan suggested he could. Um, he's, uh, you know, striking out some and not hitting for a lot of power. So Yelich has not been as good as possible. Uh, Marcelo Zuna is having another tantalizing month where you could be like, oh, this guy could be really good, but he's done that before. Um, and then the rest of the lineup is not just like not hitting at all. So Justin Boer had a good day yesterday, but before that he was hitting like 150 with no power as a first baseman. Uh, Ichiro looks 44 uh, years old or how old he is now. Um, Denny, JT Real Muto. JT Real Muto has been good for them behind the plate, yeah. Yeah, he's making a lot of contact. Yeah, he makes and a lot quite, of contact and has a little bit of power, kind of like a poor man's Russ Martin without the framing. Mm-hmm. And an above average athlete, I think. Yeah, he's a really good athlete. Uh, yeah. But uh, not a great framer, and so, uh, you know, a very interesting player. Could be Russ Martin, could also be Kurt Suzuki. Yeah, he seems he seems to have a slightly similar profile to a former uh, Miami Marlin, which is Austin Barnes currently. currently yeah, Barnes is a very different level to play this one. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Uh, and then uh, Dan Straley has been striking out quite a few players, even the fact that he does not – he still does not seem to throw much more than 92. Yeah, a good day. he throws a lot of uh, pitches up in the zone and gets swings and misses up, up top, even though it's not high-velocity stuff. Okay, all right. Uh, the Phillies – the Phillies have had uh, – the Phillies are near 500, which is, a, is an improvement for them. I, I don't have their base runs uh, marks right in front of me. Um, the Phillies – they uh, you wrote about them recently with regard, I think in particular, to Cesar Hernandez yeah. and the short power hitter. Yeah. Are Cesar Hernandez and um, Freddie Galvis still hitting too many home runs relative to their body types? Um, sure. I mean, Galvis, I think, only has three home runs. Fernandez is four, so it's not like they're going insane in home runs. This isn't, you know, they're not Eric Thames or Ryan Zimmerman or something. But, uh, what, both of them have slugging percentages around 500 for middle infielders. That's uh, a little surprising. Uh, but as noted, like, a lot of players in the last few years have said, oh, even if, uh, you know, I'm not a slugger. Maybe I can slug more than I have in the past and become a better overall player. And Hernandez, in particular, I think over the last calendar year has like a 385 Woba or something. Like this is, you know, it's only 100 play appearances this year, but dating back to to last year, he's now been a pretty good player for for quite a while. Are they still solidly sort of on the path that they intended to be since uh, they committed fully to a rebuild? Yeah, I mean, you know, they. They acquired a bunch of kind of like stopgap guys this year, like Michael Saunders and Clay Buckholtz and uh, like Daniel Navas on the roster. And, you know, so they have some older guys, but it's mostly a bunch of young kids getting shot chances, right? So, like, you know, they, they're playing Aaron Alther somewhat and uh, Hernandez and Galvis and Adubo Herrera and Michael Franco and Tommy Joseph and uh, Cameron Rupp. Like, this is, you know, a young team taking their lumps because some of these guys aren't any good, but they're going to figure out which of these guys aren't any good while they're kind of uh, sorting through their organization. Actually, my interest in French prospects uh, forced me to cross paths with the Phillies this weekend uh, because Nick Pavetta uh, made his major league debut. He yeah. was he was um, acquired by the team in the trade that sent Jonathan Papelbon to the Nationals. Correct. And he's been uh, – he, he was characterized both by Kyler McDaniel and later by Eric Longenigan as an arm strength Pitching prospect. Yeah, he throws hard. So a guy with a fastball and has, has uh, been throwing even a little bit harder this year. He was recorded 
topping as topping out at 97 in the minor leagues this year after um, really uh, probably only ever uh, reaching 95 before that. And I think that a, com- a combination of improved velocity and just uh, uh, refined command has also helped his uh, his breaking stuff play up. He has a decent slider. Uh, he throws that in conjunction with his curveball. Not much of a changeup at the point. He had an interesting start, actually, against the Dodgers. Uh, he allowed nine hits in five innings. Uh, but he also recorded a 5-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio and ultimately only allowed two runs, which I think you could say is not uh, – is it, it's a decent debut, especially if you're giving up nine hits. Yeah, I, I mean, this, he, this might actually be a good example of, like, why K percentage is better than K-9. to Because if you looked at, like, K-9, to like a strikeout per inning, yeah, he was dominant. But if you look at, like, the fact that he gave nine hits, I mean, he faced a lot of batters for throwing five innings. Well, he faced 23 batters, it looks like. Yeah, so the strikeout rate was the average. Right. So Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was not as – he certainly was not as sharp. Uh, although he did throw – he threw some impressive uh, – well, some of his fastballs have a little bit more run. I don't know if he was actually uh, – if he was definitely throwing two different fastballs. But some of them, especially when he was throwing – he was. It, he appeared to be getting more arm side movement when he was throwing to his arm side, so inside to a right-handed batter. Is that is, is that make sense for physics, or is, if I asked you for the third consecutive episode? Yeah, this is a, question a, about physics. a third straight podcast in which we wish it we had Alan Nathan. Yeah, all right. Well, Wish, wishing for Alan Nathan. Alan Nathan should be the name of this podcast. I'm not going to do that. This is going to be. Um, it's going to be a tour of the National League East. That's what it's going to be called. I already decided. Along with a wish. Along with a wish, continued right. wish for Alan. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna include that. Let's uh, tell me. Let's see about. Uh, well, we've well, we've discussed all the teams here except for the Atlanta Braves. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. The Atlanta Braves, uh, they are ten and thirteen, and uh, which is probably not a shocking record for that team to have because they were never really expected to do much. Although I suppose it's something close to respectable. I saw Matt Kemp had three home runs. Is Matt Kemp still? Without having without following Matt Kemp closely. I can guess that he is a largely inert uh, player in the field, and um, despite lacking much in the way of control of strike zone, he still has good power on contact. Does that still describe Matt Kemp? Basically, yes. Okay. He's uh, old Yasmani Tomas. Oh, okay. Because Yasmani Tomas is kind of like an old other type of player, <laughs> right? I mean, he's, he has he has skills that you're not really supposed to have at that age, I, except for the plate discipline, I guess. I mean, that he doesn't really acquire that yet. But. Right. Here's a question about uh, about the Braves. I see that the highest war figure, wins above replacement figure, produced by a Braves pitcher is reliever Jim Johnson. Which is okay. not good news. So that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, could you use a sort of a heuristic as a rule of thumb that if, it, if a team's – if the highest war – on a club has been produced by uh, one of its relief pitchers that the team is probably all things being equal. It's probably not doing so well. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. that's fair to say. Uh, yeah. okay. I think especially if you're, if that reliever is a guy who was released mid season last year, probably mm-hmm. even, even worse. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I think that, well, I don't know. I mean, we don't have to dwell on this team a lot, but like the Phillies, of course, this, uh, this Braves team is one that is in the process of rebuilding. Uh, are things more or less proceeding as expected for them? Uh, I think they were hoping they would be better this year. So this was not the Philly style, like, oh, we're just going to get some stopgaps. They were actually hoping their stopgaps would be okay and maybe would keep them in the wild card race. So, like, they were betting on, like, Bartolo Colon and Jamie Garcia and um, R.A. Dickey to kind of stabilize the rotation. That hasn't really happened yet. 
Um, you know, they, I think they, uh, at one point were like six and 12 or something. They've won more recently to get up to 10 and 13. But, uh, I would think that besides Freddie Freeman mashing and Matt Kemp not looking entirely dead, things haven't gone great in Atlanta so far. Yeah. Like Dan B. Yeah. Swanson looks like he might need to go back to AAA for a little while. Um, and he's like, you know, potentially a franchise player. That's not good news. Travis Sajic wrote last week about, um, the design of the modern ballparks. And I think that in part, uh, his decision to write about this had to do with Sun Trust Park, which is the new stadium in which Atlanta plays out in Cobb County. And he noted that um, since these ballparks, the sort, of, the sort of modern version of these ballparks, offer no obstructed seating, the, the way that they achieve that end is by not using any sort of uh, what girders. Are they girders? Yeah, pillars. Pillars and pillars. girders, right. Yeah. It was, there's something like that. But the point is that uh, be, when you take the, that away as a, as a building option, you have to build uh, further back. You have to go backwards because all the support is beneath those particular uh, seats. And so where I think like, you know, whatever, like 30 years ago or maybe a different era than that, there were no seats uh, more than 90 feet away from the field. Now there are seats that more than 90 feet from the field in like two thirds of stadia. Um, so in Centrus Park, which, which he also points out, this is a great fact, Dave Karam. Bartolo Colon's career outlasted Turner Field. Yeah, I think we actually mentioned that last week. Okay. Well, let's finish then. Let's be done, Dave Cameron. <laughs> okay. How's that was just you ending on a soliloquy about Centrus Field. There you go. All right. That's what it was. Hey, Dave Cameron, thanks so much for participating in this edition of Fangraphs Audio. You're welcome. Okay, that has been Dave Cameron. He is the managing editor at Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. That was a long one. 